Hi, I'm John Lehman, student at Indiana University, studying counseling, a world traveler, and a lover of coffee. And you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Enjoy. I'm Wendy Sheridan, and this is The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Hi, I'm Robin Renee, and welcome to episode 110. This season, we're exploring the theme of acceptance in our featured interview segments, and we've been talking to guests about various aspects of acceptance, of uh, acceptance of self, others, and the state of our world. And this time, we'll feature my interview with John Lehman. He is a graduate student at Indiana University with a very interesting life story, and he was raised as an evangelical Christian, and he has lots to say yeah. on issues of acceptance around his leaving that path. Oh, wow. So uh, stay tuned for that. Yeah. And in our Ikigai segment, we're going to talk about my revised understanding of the word Ikigai and how we can achieve this lovely state of being. So, cool. uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing this show <laughs> when it's all done. <laughs> and uh, how have you been over the last couple of weeks since we spoke last? I have been increasingly more, I wasn't feeling so great for a while and now I'm fine, which is good. <laughs> I'm, I've been out this past weekend was wonderful. I've been out sort of pretending to be a lumberjack in my yard, <laughs> getting things done. You know, it's been good. I've just been really trying to uh, just take in the weather while we can. Oh, yeah. I've been, I have been loving the weather. For those of you not in the New Jersey area, it's been sunny and cool. It's actually like been cold at night, like into the 50s. And we did a, a fire out in the yard on Saturday mm. and my daughter convinced us to make s'mores. So oh, <laughs> we did <cute>. that. <laughs> I, I didn't make a s'more yet. I still have not eaten one, but I was definitely melting marshmallows and eating those. Oh, that's so. right. You, you are one of the, you're, that's your claim to fame. You've never had s'mores, <laughs> and you kind of want to maintain that. <laughs> no, I, I would. If we had done a fire last night, like that, that Rich was threatening to do, and then it was like dark and he's going, oh, "I'm not doing a fire tonight." I would have actually made one and tried it because uh, I think I think I'm ready. I think my palate is ready to handle the the mix of flavors <laughs> <laughs> and textures. So funny! I love it. <laughs> Oh, wow. So anyway, just want to let everybody know that you can catch a new episode of The Leftscape every other Wednesday. Subscribe to our show on our website, leftscape.com, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to get uh, your automatic download so you don't miss us. Yeah. And you can also follow us. You can follow us on 
all of the social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Well, that's three of the social media. We aren't on TikTok. But uh, on the other things, I'm, we are I'm moving at Leftscape. Oh, no. I, I, okay. I, I cannot wrap my brain around TikTok. So <laughs> I will never be there. So okay. I, 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 I am not the demographic for whom TikTok exists. Uh, <laughs> but we are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram <laughs> at Leftscape. And if you want to be just a little bit extra for us, you could leave us a review, Facebook, on Google, uh, or your podcatcher of choice. And then if you're on our website, which we do encourage you to go to, leftscape.com, check out our show notes and you can sign up for our monthly-ish newsletter that Robin lovingly produces every month-ish, the Ish. Leftscape <laughs> Luke- <laughs> Lookout. <laughs> awesome and join us over on patreon please for our extra content becoming a patron really helps us make our show better and we appreciate your support at any level so if you join us at the front row seats level at just a dollar a month you can get our patron segment we should be recording this which we make notes every time we start talking about something interesting and say okay stop talking (laughs) <laughs> and now we'll record it for we should be recording this because we should be recording this. <laughs> um, and our most recent post is a conversation about how spirituality and culture from Asia have influenced us and our, our practices and our lives. So hope you will join us over there at patreon.com slash leftscape. And we have a uh, quick rewind from our One of my random facts from last week or last show, rather, the moose hunting law that says it's there. uh, So it says it's illegal to whisper to someone while they were hunting moose is an Alaskan law. And during Robin's research on the topic, (laughs) she discovered it is also illegal to give a moose an alcoholic beverage. (laughs) (laughs) And you know that as soon as you know that I found out that's a law, I really wanted to break that law. A, a drunk moose would be very scary, but yeah, also kind of entertaining. Only from not Alaska. <laughs> yeah, not in Alaska while the moose is drunk. But you also have to think about they usually don't pass laws unless something happened to cause them to make the law in the first place. So I want to know who's the person that <laughs> intoxicated the moose, the moose right. in the first place. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that that would be it, an interesting tale if, if they live to tell the tale. <laughs> <laughs> the headline Drunken Moose Rampages Shopping Center. Right. <laughs> A Florida man went to Alaska. <laughs> I think maybe. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, uh, now it's time for three random facts and the news. And our first random fact. They're not as random. They're sort These of. These are not really random this, this time, ra- I have to Yeah, say. okay. Uh, <laughs> but Shakespeare has never mentioned October in any of his plays or sonnets. That's and a I, cool one. I like that fact. I'm also unable to find out if Shakespeare didn't mention other months in any of his plays or sonnets. But October's definitely one of the non spoken about <laughs> months. Interesting. (laughs) And my fact comes from Emma at platelessordinary.com. It was 
chatting with her and she mentioned she was researching pumpkin pie, pumpkin spice facts. So I said, wait, give me a fact, please. (laughs) And she said that the first modern pumpkin pie recipe is widely credited to a 1796 cookbook called American Cookery by Amelia Simmons. Oh, cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my final fact for today is the Statue of Liberty arrived in the United States from France in October of 1886. Very nice. Yeah. Very autumn facts. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess now it's time for all the news we can handle. So the Women's March happened on Saturday, October 2nd. The rally in the nation's capital hosted approximately 5,000 people in and around Freedom Plaza that the group organizing it said. Marches are also took place in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, and in a lot of other places. And the main theme over this march, over the march this year was to protest the abortion restriction laws that went into place in Texas in September. You know, I, I have to say, uh, I don't know why I couldn't get, I, I felt like I really wanted to be there and I should have gone to Philly or, or one of the ones in New Jersey and just, yeah, I, I sometimes I get a little bit dejected. I'm like, so what is our marching going to do? And I know that marching helps because it gets people psyched and it gets people excited to to go into their communities and do the things we need to do. Yeah, and sometimes I I don't know I lost energy for it for this one, and I feel I, sad about it. But I um, am sharing those feelings with you, yeah. and I'm also very disappointed with the media coverage that didn't that happened. I was very hard pressed finding reports about it this morning, for example. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there was a lot of stuff leading up to it. There was a lot of media, but I, I think the other news things happening over the weekend really foreshadowed it. And and I'm a little sad that, that it's not getting like that coverage that I think it needed. Yeah. I think that's what makes the difference when people see it. And I know that, I know that some people like, I think like Rachel Maddow will talk about it. And she's someone who is definitely talking to an audience who will go out and do work around this issue, you know? Mm. So if nothing else, maybe, some folks like that will will get it out there just to remind people like we need to do this work, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm while we're kind of on that topic, I have another news thing, the news slash PSA <laughs> <laughs> to say that I think it probably goes with it is that you know, with the elections coming up, that's that's where we can really make some difference and you know, we, most some of us have elections coming up next month in November. Most most states have something, I would think. And local elections are so important, you know, like the battles about masks in school and that sort of like the, the weird people like acting out in, you know, local meetings and stuff. That's really where that happens. And and county and state elections, really, especially state elections are where people are starting to try to pass like this really strange abortion restrictions that mirror the one in Texas and that sort of stuff. So it really matters to be registered to vote. So like, it's really good. You can go to vote.org and check, am I registered? There's, we'll have a link on our site, you know, just to be prepared for that sort of stuff, because where 
these laws change in those state and local elections. So it's not we always had, like a presidential, yeah. you know. We had two ele- we we had an election two weeks ago for uh school bond issues. And two of them failed, one of them passed. And the in it and literally it was five votes. Mm. So, to yeah, decide. I mean, and, and there were only a few hundred people voting. And and there's more than that who were registered voters in in this school district and or in town. You know, there's the population in our town is twenty thousand. And there's more than five hundred registered voters. So <laughs> there, you, you know, one would hope. Yeah. So that election came and went. We are definitely we have another election in New Jersey in November, the first Tuesday of November, whatever day of the week that or date that is, which I, I'm blanking on it. And that's we're voting for governor. So yes. this is not a trivial election. It is sort of off season. And and that's why they I think they put like the local the, there's also state legislature there's some state legislature seats that are up because one of our former interviewees, Elizabeth Grainer, is running for the for a district that I'm not a, a, a resident of, so I can't vote for her, which is sad. But it's definitely a red district, and she's running on a Democratic ticket, and I wish her all of the best. I'd like to, I, if they flip that district, that would be great. I'm not holding my breath, but <laughs> it's uh, it's Berkeley Heights, I think, she's okay. she's running, and you know, that's a fairly affluent town. And the more money the towns have, the redder they seem to be. Mm. Um, it's just sort well, of... Definitely, we'll send our our, our support out and retweet yeah. our messages and that sort of yes, stuff. That's yes, great. yes. So yeah. vote. So register. And in New Jersey, you have till October 15th to register for the next election. So Very good. you still have time. Yes. So March, vote. Whatever you got to do, but but definitely vote. <laughs> the Department of Homeland Security announced deportation priorities, which were encouraging, I would say. They sent out a memo that says those who arrived after November 1st, 2020, those who show criminal activity or pose an imminent threat are, are the people that they're going to focus on in terms of deportation and hmm. really de-emphasize you know, other people. So if, if someone's just not documented, that is going to be a lower priority moving forward. Well, that's good. So, yeah, so that's a, that's a positive thing. I think, you know, it's, I guess the argument is that it's not really encouraging people to come now so that if, if they show up now, that's after November, 2020, obviously. So that's not really in their favor, but if people are here and they're not causing any trouble, then that's going to be less of a priority. And that was like a, you know, it's like a memo. So it can be undone when the next election happens, which is, yeah. you know, that's kind of the way this happens, I guess, a lot of it. But <sighs> but I think that's a, a positive step. Biden has, the Biden administration has been having a really mixed track record. Track record. Thank you. <laughs> With the border, you know, because so many Haitians especially have been turned away. Yeah. Trump had put in a title, a a, a statute called Title 42, which basically would just prioritize like just deporting and everyone and and anyone based on COVID-19 essentially Mm. fears. And Biden hadn't really changed that so that, you know, things had been going on pretty much as 
they had been, which was disappointing to a lot of people who thought they'd see a big change immediately yeah. when he came in. So I, I think, so I, I, I feel very conflicted about it too. I feel like the, this new latest announcement is a positive. And I also feel like a lot of not great things have been happening on the Mexican border, especially so. Strange. Yeah. I also think there's so much to unravel that got fucked up over the last four years before Biden took over that it, you can't unravel all of it simultaneously, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's going to take a long time to unwind everything. Yeah. I mean, I imagine we're even able to do that. Right. That's that's also assuming you know we keep control of the, the of Congress and and the White House. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that a, a culture develops on the border where people have the people working there have ideas about how to, to treat people, and that has not been well in recent no. times. So no. I can imagine it takes some time to switch that over or, or whatever, however the change needs to be made. But I'm cautiously optimistic with this latest announcement. Okay. I guess I'll say, you know, okay. So we'll see. And another huge news item dropped, I think yesterday, which would be Sunday over the weekend, uh, the Pandora papers, they were released over the weekend in terms of volume. This is the largest trove of leaked offshore data in history. It comes from offshore service providers operating in Antigua, Anguilla, Belize, Singapore, Switzerland, Panama, Barbados, Cyprus, Dubai, the Bahamas, and the British Virgin Islands, Seychelles, and Vietnam. Basically, this is like any country where people are hiding money. Um, hmm. The files were leaked to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ, which is not identifying its source. I'm glad yeah, uh, the ICIJ, <laughs> considering what happened in prior document releases, I'm really happy about that. But uh, let's see. The ICIJ gave 600 journalists around the world remote access to the leaked data to facilitate the largest journal journalistic collaboration in history. They include reporters from The Guardian, BBC, Le Monde and The Washington Post. The Pandora Papers follow in the footsteps of two previous seismic leaks facilita facilitated by the ICIJ, the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers in 2016 and 2017, prompted global debates about ethics of offshore finance and helped bring about some genuine reforms in places such as the British Virgin Islands. And I remember when the Panama Papers were released and the journalist who released it ended up dying under suspicious circumstances shortly afterwards. And I don't know that much changed in the United States over this. And I'm hoping maybe this time we can do something, but I, I'm less than cautiously optimistic about that. Wow. Well, this is huge. I actually hadn't heard this news yet. So it's, I yeah, definitely want to learn it more. Is, it is the front page story everywhere this morning. And uh, there's a lot that I went on the Guardian and um, and the Post this morning, and it's it's that's all they're talking about. And there's a lot of explanations about it. And I know there were specific articles about some Middle Eastern 
rich guy buying millions of dollars worth of property in New York, for example, stuff like that. And there, and it's, I think it's causing Boris Johnson in the UK a lot of trouble right now. Cause wow. I think, yeah, it's, it's something, you know, go check it out. I um, will. I know, I, I, I know that all the podcasts I listen to, we're going to be talking about <laughs> today for sure. And I will definitely read up on it as well. Yeah, I really hope sense. I really hope that that uh, something good happens out of this for like those of us who are not billionaires. So, and Robin made a comment in our notes that all of these papers must alliterate. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, so. I mean, we started out with the Pentagon Papers way back in the day, and now <laughs> Panama, Paradise, Pandora. So, I guess we can yeah. look forward to other alliterative. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i'll say <laughs> but anyway yeah this anyway, is interesting news i'm looking forward to learning more yeah i, I think that's uh, all the news we can handle today <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by feminism are you tired of conforming to gender norms that don't really fit who you are have you been frustrated in meetings by having others repeat what you just said and have the room react as if it's the first time they'd heard it? Are your loan rates higher and your salary lower than the guy sitting next to you in the office? Are you unable to express your emotions without being ridiculed? Maybe it's time to ask your doctor about feminism. Side effects might include empowerment, equal pay, respect, being seen, and being heard. Ask your doctor or therapist if feminism is right for you. Or you can just decide for yourself. And now... Back to our podcast. Welcome to our Ikigai segment, where we discuss all things Ikigai. <laughs> That's very circular. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, Ikigai okay. is a Japanese word that literally means life's purpose. I, that is, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, what I was going to say is that what we've been talking about is that the sort of American understanding of it that we'd been working with says that Ikigai is the intersection of four experiences, I guess you could say, and uh, and it's getting to know what we love, what the world needs, what we can be paid for, and what we're good at, and yeah. sort of finding the the, the the intersection of those four is what your ikigai is, and yeah. um, I think that's, that that's not really as no, um, that's, that's not, not really it. what people it is. No. Yes, yeah. There so was a Venn there was a Venn diagram with four circles, and mm -hmm. that's been on the internet for years now. And somebody, I think the original one had in English life's purpose in the middle of the intersection of all of those four things, and somebody else decided to change that to ikigai. And as I've been doing more and more research into this subject, I have discovered that that is not exactly, that was not the intent of that diagram. And it's not what Ikigai is. As, as I- So we've all been working off of like a, a meme that's yeah, gone down the lane yeah, a few yeah, times, yeah. right? <laughs> yep. Yep. And, yeah. and it's, you know, I, and I guess- I think a lot of conspiracy theories and stuff start out that way, but at least this one, even though it's wrong, it is not detrimental. I think this is kind of a benign, <laughs> a benign mi misunderstanding. 
you know, because striving for, you know, a life's purpose that would fill, fulfill all those four areas is not a bad thing. I think it's a good thing, but it's not Ikigai. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad thing. It's it's interesting. I was I was watching a discussion that sort of touched on this not long ago, and I think you're right. It's not a bad thing in and of itself, but unfortunately, I think some like it's an American tendency. I think to like strive to I don't want to say strive to excess, but make, make it a make it a a problem somehow. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I know that. Or, or you wind up feeling inadequate, like I can't, you know, maybe it's like the, I can't achieve these things and I'm trying so hard and I'm missing this one and it can cause us kind of stress, you know, and, and you I mean know like that, a FOMO kind of thing. Nah, no, not as much FOMO as I've been having FOMO big time about everyone going out dancing and I don't feel like I'm really <laughs> comfortable doing that right now. So I've been having FOMO around that, but no, this is more like a real kind of feeling of loss. Like I'm, I, I'm supposed to be this, I like the, the, the way that people talk about Instagram affecting young women. Okay. I'm supposed to be meeting this ideal and I, and I can't get there. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's now, a very American attitude is yes. There's this perfect perfection ideal where, and it's not supposed to be hard to get there or that difficult. Or you're not uh, supposed to beat yourself up over not over it, it you know. And yet but, we do. But we do. <laughs> yes. And I um, definitely have fell, fallen into that. And I've heard of others who are working with that ikigai model, that incorrect model. Right. And that it, wind up feeling like that. Like, yes. why can't I make all the money doing what I love? Or why yes. can't I, you know. Well, so. I had that. I <laughs> That was me. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then I... I think, you know, you may have shown me the website and it's about, it's a it, ikigaitribe.com, which their first page with the, with the, dev, with the, 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 Venn, the Zen diagram, the Venn diagram, <laughs> the Zen diagram is something completely different that I That's just made up <laughs> and, and maybe we'll go somewhere with that someday. Um, <laughs> the Venn diagram with the four things. Uh, they're explaining that it's wrong, and it also they kind of looked like they're trying to sell us a course. Um, oh, that yeah, I yeah, that. yeah, yeah. But further on in the website, they they talk to this other this other Japanese gentleman, Ken Moji, who also wrote a book. And I have the book. I bought the book like a while back, and so I have three books on it now. So I'm really an expert. <laughs> <laughs> well, what have you been learning? And the Ikigai is composed of five pillars and they are pillar one is starting small. Pillar two is releasing yourself. Pillar three is harmony and sustainability. Pillar four is the joy of four things. And pillar five is being in the here and now. And those things it's ikigai seems to be a state of mind where and you can apply it to any aspect of your in you know any aspect of your life you know like if you do this in you know in terms of your work you're really you're concentrating on the details so you can create exceptional products 
you know, they, they use examples like being a sushi chef or they to also, he also goes extensively into sumo wrestling and that whole, the whole culture of, of sumo, which I didn't know much about. So no matter what you're doing, you're doing it with intention. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and I think, I think those five pillars, some of which are difficult to do, you know, cause a lot of times, you know, taking, you know, really learning how to be in the here and now is not something that they teach us how to do as a children in the West, you know, so that's something we really have to work on because <laughs> yeah. we're always. I'm one of those weirdos that actually did get taught some of that when I was a kid. Yeah. I learned but... meditation pretty early, but yeah. that's not the norm. No, and I mean, it, you know, it's and getting, and I'm great at it, but <laughs> <laughs> better than me, <laughs> but it's, it's not part of the normal Western upbringing. I mean, there are people have in, I guess the last 10 or 20 years started to look into, you know, like teaching elementary school kids yoga as a way, you know, and meditation as a way to to keep yourself calm or to, you know, learn how to, to handle things in a different way than, than, you know, than for example, how I was brought up, which they didn't, you know, you don't learn any of that kind of coping skills <laughs> in my, in my family when I was a kid, that was not something anybody thought about. So, so these, these are five pillars of, of Ikigai and it, and I, and it helps you then to be joyful in your life and to, to see joy and to see joy in, in, in the things you, that you're doing and to do things well, if that mm. is what you want to be doing. I like that, that construction a lot more because it's, it sort of brings it back to that sense of balance. And it's not so much about achievement, if that makes right. sense. I mean, it would, yes. be, it would be good to achieve, but these are all things that you can kind of be noticing in your life mm -hmm. and balancing as, as you go, as opposed to like, I got to get this thing and then I get that. Right, right. And then they have to intersect. It's, it's, a little, yeah. it's less harsh or something. Well, I mean, his, his, one, his sumo example, the whole thing about sumo wrestling is you're – if when you become, when you decide you want to do sumo wrestling, you join a stable, I think is what the, is the call, you know, they, and they all live in the same building and they all, you know, they're all doing things together. And the, the top wrestlers, there's like, you know, 5% of people entering sumo end up at the top. So most of the people aren't going to reach the top level of of sumo wrestling but he gives you examples of these other people who you know they know they're never going to be the best wrestler but they do other things in in the in the stables like this one guy he does the cooking for and there's all these different functions that happen around wrestling matches and and you don't have to be like the best sumo wrestler to achieve 
your inner peace or your sense of accomplishment or any of that. And he, you know, he explains how that is in there. And, and his examples are like this guy, he knows he's not, you know, he does this other function in the stable and he's really happy doing it because he does it very well. And everybody appreciates him for doing these things. And, you know, he has, it, it's, it, you know, it's his ikigai and, And it's, that's the thing. It's, it's really very ingrained in Japanese culture. So it is not easy, I guess, to explain to outsiders because you're not raised to, you know, how, when you're raised in a certain culture, a lot of this stuff is like background, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just there. It's, it's your, it's your foundation and, and you don't even think about it all the time. It's just how you are and how you approach things. I enjoy going to other places because I notice my assumptions and the energy I carry when mm. you're confronted with something that's different, you know, mm-hmm. and exper- in immersed in something different. Yeah. Ikigai is more broad than that. Can you say the five pillars? Again? Yes, I shall. I will say them again. They are starting small, releasing okay. yourself. Wait. Okay. So starting small could mean anything, anything that you're doing or wanting. To right. Of- Okay. Right. Release Releasing yourself. yourself. What Harmony. Does that mean? I that I'm not sure yet. Uh, I think it has to do with ego, but I'm not sure. I okay. I need to reread the book. Okay. <laughs> Harmony and sustainability, and and I think that is important in especially. I think that's important in a global sense at this time because. To be harmonious, you know, harmony and sustainability in in whatever you're doing, it's better for the earth. And, you know, in in terms of like global warming and all of the other environmental issues, you know, whatever you're doing, you know, it has to be it has to be able to sustain itself. You know, you can't it can't drain you of your energy while you're doing it. And it also, I think in terms of, of like a business or an, a, a vocation, having it be sustainable on all of the levels, including, you know, what you're paying your employees, for example, mm-hmm. you know. And if, your impact on the planet. And your, and your impact, impact on, on the planet. People. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. That's a and, beautiful one. Yeah. And the, the fourth one is the joy of small things. And oh, okay, the first time you said said that I thought you said the joy of four things. No, small things. And I thought, is that like a? It's like a riddle. It's like a koan. <laughs> sort of, you know? No, it's the joy of small things. Okay, all right. I like that's that. where where you pay attention to the details, and you know, it's like when you're con- you're making something like a craft or or you know, just building something or making something, and you take you take joy in the fact that you know the little details are coming out nice Mm. you know um and you can even you can bring that to any endeavor like if you're writing you and you find the right the perfect word for that sentence you Mm -hmm. know that little that little hit of serotonin (laughs) in your brain when you when you just you go oh that's the perfect word for that um you know or or you're or if you're writing code and you come up with a really nice little subroutine, for example, you know, that kind of 
that kind of thing. Or, or yeah. you're knitting and your stitches are all nice and even. <laughs> <laughs> and I love, you know, I mean, I, as I was mentioning earlier, just being outside and mowing the lawn or mm -hmm. chopping, you know, branches or something like it's just a, it's just a physical experience and it's not necessarily, I mean, it's, it's also getting something done. Like you can look at the end and go like, Oh, wow, I accomplished something. It seems <laughs> kind of endless, but I can see some things I've done. That feels really good to me. Yeah. And it's sort of, because it, it, it's, I don't know. It's a simple thing. Like people think you're supposed to be writing the great American novel or something. And I, you know, and I, I want to do, I like to do big things too. And yeah. produce things and whatever, but sometimes just very day-to-day -day things, just walking, just, you know. I, when I worked in the lab, I loved the jobs that a lot of other people hated. Like if, I just, if you just have to fill a thousand test tubes with 10 milliliters of something, you're like, <laughs> I, it's actually really meditative. <laughs> I don't mind those kinds of tasks, you know. Uh -huh. There's a lot of sort of very physical or repetitive things that I find soothing or just, they're just, they just are, you know? Yeah. And well, I also, I'll go in that category. Also, big things are composed of a lot of little things. Exactly. So that's a way to think about it. No, I mean, it, it is. I mean, I, I can't think of any gigantic project that didn't have thousands or millions of tiny little components. Mm -hmm. You know, like a Saturn V rocket, for example. <laughs> right. You know, it's it's a whole bunch of little tiny things that are all working together and turned into a big thing. Or, or you know, you, you have like a Saturn V rocket or a big blockbuster uh, superhero movie. You know, I, I don't know. Like, I don't I don't know. I know Marvel is like got me got me to so sit through credits because they would put like a scene at the end. Yeah, so that was you, put cool Easter eggs and stuff. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, if you actually sit through the credits and you're paying attention and you you actually realize there's holy shit, there, there's like ten thousand names coming scrolling by for fifteen yeah. minutes, and those are all people who worked on this, you know. So it, it's it's an it's an effort of a lot of people doing a lot of really tiny things, especially like for example, like the CGI artists, like they spend three months painting you know doing pixel painting on an explosion mm. <laughs> you know, like every frame is like hand done practically i mean i think they've automated a lot of it by now but a lot of it isn't and so yeah so that's you know the joy of small things and the and the, the last pillar is is being in the here and now which is tough for americans because we don't mm. we're not taught how to do that yeah it's hard to stay there. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, it's the idea of remembering and returning. Because mm. we always get pulled into some direction or another, you know. And it's like, oh, wait, here I am again going off into La La Land. <laughs> <And then laughs> back, you know. Yeah. So Ikigai is really not about entrepreneurship like we, like I had originally thought. I, I, I had put that Venn diagram into my, oh, I'm doing my own business box. And it doesn't really belong there. It, it's a much bigger concept. It's more of, it's more of how you decide to 
feel about your life on a daily and a minute by minute basis, you know? And, and I think it's, I think it's something that I, de I definitely want to learn a lot more about and to, and to put it into practice in my daily life. And, um, you know, I try to do some of it through, through gardening and, and through other things, because gardening is definitely one of those be here now kind of activities, mm. you know, cause you're just, you're doing a thing in the dirt, you're digging in the dirt, you're pulling up a weed or you're trimming a pruning a plant or doing a thing. And, and you're like with the plant or you're with, <laughs> you know, you're just, you're in that moment. You're not thinking about, you know, the taxes that you have to pay for next month or, or, you know, the party that, that you may have been invited to or the other thing that you're going to be organizing or, you know, any, you're not thinking about anything else. You're just sort of like, Oh, this tomato, is this tomato ripe enough to pick today? Mm -hmm. You know, I really love this. And I'm, I'm wondering if to move forward in this segment, if we want to look at each of these new pillars yes. and just to sort of meditate on, on them and think about them and maybe, and I also feel like it's, they're not discrete, you know? So in each no. of the topics, we would also be kind of looking at how they affect or how, or, or how we look at the other ones too, because they're not yeah. really, it's not like one, five separate things now. It's like, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. It's interesting. Yeah. I like this. Yeah. It's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so articulate. It's a thing. <laughs> no, it's, it's about as articulate as I've been these days. Everything is a thing. Thing, thing is... Thing is the new catch word <laughs> blanket. If, you, if you're down by me, it's a John. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking speak. forward to to delving deeper into this topic. And I'm glad that I'm you know, that I'm getting away from the the not quite getting it Venn diagram part of it. So yeah, I kind of feel like that diagram has a purpose. It's it's unfortunately labeled. Yes, you I, know that part. Yes, it's it's it. That Venn diagram is great if you can, if that's what you're doing, you know, for your your work, for your day job kind mm -hmm. of thing. But Ikigai goes beyond that. It's deeper. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I'm 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 excited to deepen this exploration. <laughs> cool. Hi, I'm Daniel Kay. I write children's books and I collect hermit crabs and I just enjoy life whenever I can. And I hope you do too. You're listening to The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation. Well, I am very happy to welcome to The Leftscape, John Lehman. John is a world traveler, outdoor adventurer, and a curiosity-driven extrovert who is intent on exploring the depths of the human experience. He is uh, formerly a special education teacher. He's currently enrolled in the Master's of Education program in mental health counseling and counselor education at Indiana University, where he also serves as a research coordinator with the Kinsey Institute. 
While he currently resides in Indiana, he has previously lived in Singapore, upstate New York, and in Philadelphia. Hi, John. It is so cool to have you here. I'm really grateful to be here, Robin. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So just from that description and, and what I know about you in general, it sounds like you are living your best life. It sounds just awesome. You're doing a lot and you've been a lot of places. And I just would love to hear a little bit more about your background. Like, how did you come to live in Singapore? Yeah, I appreciate you asking. Thank you. It's a very kind compliment. I hope that we're all striving toward um, such a life. <laughs> yeah, I would say the Singapore experience was when I was... When I was five, my dad and my mom would have gone there for my dad's work. He was on business with a company called Roman Haas. It's now under uh, Dow Chemical. And we were there for three and a half years. He was on, I believe it was either a research or a technical sales like position. And I went to Singapore American School. We did a lot of traveling of East Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, um, very formative experience for me. Um, I would say probably one of the most influential things. And I'm not sure if it was, you know, chicken or the egg where, you know, have I always just been a curious person by nature or did having an experience like that pique my curiosity as an individual? May never truly know, but I will say that growing up among people of many different backgrounds and cultures in between the ages of five to nine, that's pretty formative years. So I really internalized this idea that there's just a depth and breadth to the human experience. And I've kind of operated under that curiosity for most of my life because the way I live is likely not how many others are living necessarily. So it's uh, it was a really it was a really impactful time and it's definitely given me a dose of the travel bug, cultural humility and yeah, just a lot of gratitude for the life I've lived. I'm, I'm really grateful that my dad chose to um, take us there. It was a risk for my parents and they, they kind of nailed it. So, um, <laughs> nice. yeah. Awesome. So another piece that I'm aware of in your background is that you, I believe you grew up as an evangelical. Is that true? Like through your, throughout your early life or how yes. did that come into play? Yeah. Thank you for asking. Yes. Yeah, so my parents, I believe they'd identify as probably non-denominational evangelical Christians, and that's how they raised me. Yep, that was my childhood background, essentially, kind of to answer that question. But yeah, you, were you going to follow up with another? Yeah, oh yes, I've got tons of questions. So yeah, so what are some of the tenets of that religion that stand out for you that really sort of um, encapsulate your upbringing and how, how you formed your your belief system at the time? Wow, that's a really... That's a really insightful question. Yeah, I think as I reflect, and for for context, I think we'll probably get to this part of the conversation, or I'll bring this up in conversation with you today. I no longer identify with a particular religious belief. Um, That said, though, I was pretty devout for a good two decades, and... I would say the core tenets that I gained from my time in evangelicalism, and I would say some really positive qualities too. Um, Compassion is the word that keeps coming to my mind. I think kind of the idea that Jesus conveys with loving your neighbors yourself, 
I really felt that reverberated in the church communities that existed. And I definitely felt that people were very driven by love and service to others. Um, so it made sense too that growing up in Singapore, I really, I felt drawn to the idea of connecting with others. I think uh, Singapore also, just because of how diverse it is, I think has a certain level of groundwork laid as a culture where because people come from so many backgrounds, if someone either gives you a hand gesture or says something that feels offensive, maybe it would be offensive to me. I think there's a cultural assumption to, you know, maybe hit the brakes a little bit and not assume the person has ill intent. You know, there's a lot of cross-cultural communication that uh, results in miscommunication. And I think in a culture where everyone's coming from very different backgrounds, there's a lot more grace around that. I think that showed up in the way I experienced uh, being raised religious in Singapore too, because I remember accidentally, like, I didn't even mean to, but I elbowed my friend's Buddha. And I remember like learning how I could apologize. And I'm like six years old. Like um, on an altar, like some, a Buddha that was. I, I think, I don't know. I think it was near their kitchen table. I just remember oh, kind okay. of hitting it with my elbow and feeling really bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember my family and I, we went to a friend's house um, for Hanukkah dinner. We, um, one of my best friends, I believe, I believe he was Muslim. And we lived closer to a Sikh temple than we did a church. So I think that that upbringing and that level of normalcy around diverse expressions of religious belief, I think put me in a place where I, I saw people's spiritual expressions as an asset. And I'm really grateful for that. And I'm not the, I would attribute that more to my bringing Singapore than I would evangelical culture. Because I think largely coming back to the Philadelphia area where I spent most of my childhood kind of in the Philly burbs, I found that with a little bit more homogeny, there was less exposure, I think, to other cultures and diverse thoughts. So there was less of that cultural celebration. And I think that probably set the tone over like many years for why I started to feel disconnected from the belief system I grew up believing. Um, but yeah, those are some, to kind of summarize and answer your question in a nutshell, is I would say that my upbringing um, in the church uh, taught me compassion. I think it gave me a heart for service work. And I think largely due to Singapore and the fact that I myself was religious, um, an excitement for things like interfaith dialogue and or um, just holding space for another person's view of the world. Because again, we operate in many different ways through different cultures. So of course we're going to believe different things about this life experience that, I mean, we just, what does Pete Holmes say? He says something, we just woke up on a rock flying through space thousands of miles an hour. And that totally makes sense. Like we have no idea what's going on. So, <laughs> so that is really interesting because I think a lot of people's impression of evangelicalism would not be, an openness to differences and exploration of other people's belief systems and, and that sort of thing. So that's really, that sounds really unique to me. Is that, do you think that your being abroad is really what made that come to the fore for you? Or are there different segments of evangelicalism that I might not be aware of that are more open to other people's ways? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a great question. I appreciate that. When, and I think probably my initial thought on that, and I think 
our minds, I think, often tend toward um, tribal tendencies, having been hunter-gatherers for hundreds of thousands of years. I think our minds tend to think in groups of probably 200 or less typically. So thinking about the broader population, um, it can be harder to wrap our minds around statistics, like how many died in a war, how many died in a tsunami, because we don't have, sometimes we don't have a connection to those places or those people. So it can be more statistics and numbers. So I guess as I think about, as it regards my religious upbringing, um, I would definitely say that Singapore presented that unique quality that allowed me to engage with diverse religious beliefs from a point of celebration. And that said too, though, having navigated a lot of my childhood in the church, um, I still find that there's a lot of diversity of thought. Um, I actually deconverted, or I started the process of I kind of addressing some of my doubts and finding answers that didn't necessarily support the belief system that I was operating under um, while I was in college, which was actually at a conservative Christian university. Um, and this would be kind of a good example for me of like a, kind of a microclimate where there's a lot of diverse thought. I actually met with a professor before my senior religion class, uh, my final year, and I just met with him for lunch to kind of let him know that I essentially didn't identify as Christian anymore and I didn't want to get chewed out in class. And his response was, I'm so excited to have you in this class. You're going to have a perspective that people don't often get in this environment. I'm really hoping that you do share. And that was so empowering. And that was coming from a Christian who, as far as I know, very progressive, um, huge supporter for LGBTQ rights, uh, quality, um, huge uh, supporter for Black Lives Matter. So again, very kind of in touch with the needs of um, our people. And I, I think at times evangelicalism has gotten a bad rep and admittedly for good reason. I think <laughs> kind of this yeah, persecution narrative of like their voices are being silenced isn't necessarily the case. And I think it can be a confusion between persecution and criticism I think when evangelical movement has made missteps or has hurt people groups and cry persecution, it's tough for me to stomach because I think at times there's merit to the idea, like actually collectively evangelical Christianity has hurt people. And I think it's going to be people like the professor I had in college that I think really helped um, reconcile with some of the pain that's been caused. And I think that's the only way forward. Um, so as I guess I think about that, I wanted to say all that more just to create ambiguity that unfortunately there are some aspects and probably some individuals in the evangelical mindset that are holding on to ideas that are probably a little, I mean, for lack of better words, outdated or are not reconciling well with kind of current social movements and needs of people groups. But I also think there's evangelicals out there that are really trying to recreate the narrative, um, recreate what it is. Um, and so I guess I want to paint in, paint maybe the religious experience of Christians with some ambiguity, because I think we, we deserve to give that to every people group of every, every religious background. Yes. Thank you for yeah. that. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. So our, sort of over, overarching theme this season is about acceptance. And I'm curious about your your journey, like when you started to have doubts and, and, and started to change your ways of thinking, or at least in the sort of like 
overarching belief systems. What did that play a role in it? Was it was it about accepting yourself or accepting something new or new ideas? How did that happen for you? I love that question. And I noticed the last podcast too, maybe maybe episode 105 came out end of July. Yeah, very much kind of hitting on that topic of acceptance. I love that you and Wendy are doing like a theme for this. Yes. And um, oh, well, this is good. So you did your homework. <laughs> did my homework. I was like, has anyone gone up to the plate before me? And turns out someone else did. So thank you. Was it D- David? Was that the individual? Uh, um, uh, Daniel. 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 Oh, yes. man. I got the first two letters right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So with that, kind of to your question about acceptance. I love kind of a bit you threw into the question uh, that really, really stood out to me was um, kind of the idea of like self-acceptance. And that has been just a continuous journey. And I wonder if to some degree, much of the human experience of getting to know ourselves is continual self-acceptance and self-love. A big theme for me of the last year has been that as I've actually just been in uh, therapy with a counseling psychologist. Largely, it's actually kind of the, it's the degree I'm going for too. So it's been really fun to not only explore my inner world um, and the parts that have needed healing and the parts of me that I'm very uh, happy to have with me, but also um, kind of getting an understanding of uh, what that career looks like because I've been able to look at someone who's doing it in a position where I eventually want to be. So I think, yeah, I think acceptance is continually part of the process. And I think maybe the first theme of acceptance I would have noticed in kind of my doubts was just accepting accepting answers that I didn't necessarily want to hear. And I think that is an important distinction to make to help us override our cognitive dissonance, which cognitive dissonance, like as a tool, psychologically is, has been really beneficial. You know, I reference hunter-gatherers, but I think about how you know, if they saw that so-and-so ate the wrong berry and saw how it you know, treated them, you know, passing through those, passing those toxins through their body, um, it's really useful to feel very closed off to the idea of like, oh, I'm never eating that again kind of thing, or I'm not eating, eating anything like it. Um, so there's definitely like a use for cognitive dissonance. I don't think it's always a bad thing, but I do think there's a self-preservation aspect in it that when presented with new ideas that conflict with our current worldview, we can choose to lean into the discomfort and let it help us grow, or we can kind of push it away. And I, my first experience with addressing questions around my faith uh, when I was a Christian happened my sophomore year of high school. And ironically, I was volunteering at a church coffee shop where the person working was actually an atheist. Um, and looking back philosophically, I'm not sure he had maybe the strongest arguments. Like I'm not sure uh, Daniel Dennett or Richard Dawkins would be like gung ho with his arguments. Uh, but I think, <laughs> but I do think. Um, I do think he had one leg up on me and that's that he was able to identify that I, you know, I hadn't really questioned why I believed in Jesus. I believed in it. I believed in him and Christianity because I was raised Christian. I hadn't stepped out of that. And I think that was really hard for me. It was really hard for me because I think simultaneously while I lived in Singapore, I was still a kid, but I also think, I noticed a lot of people took pride in their cultural heritage and their religious background. So there was some element of feeling celebrated. So I never needed to, even in the face of other religions. And granted, I was young too, so that could be part of it as well. But with this in high school, I remember that particular year, 
I was just like on a roll. 5.30 in the morning, I'd wake up, read the Bible, go for a run. I think I, sometimes I'd even pull out my telescope and I'd look at the stars before the sunrise. Like I remember that time very fondly. And I think there was such a like delight in just the life experience and very much like the way I you know, engaged with the Bible was to just like delight in the world God had made. I remember the Monday after I had the conversation with the atheist I was working with and just kind of looked at the Bible and thought like, what am I, what am I doing? What is this? And I had a lot of doubts and I noticed that I think my parents, I have some vague memories of um, my mom in particular being pretty uncomfortable with some of my questions. And I wonder if at like an unconscious level, I internalized that the questions I was asked, the questions I had were inherently threatening to the belief system that I was living under. And so whether or not I intentionally did this, I read a lot, but I only really read books and texts that kind of skewed back toward Christianity. So I was able to create some strong arguments for why I believed in the Christian faith. And I don't think I realized that I purposefully kind of closed the door on other worldviews. And maybe that was a survival mechanism that it would have been really inconvenient for me to deconvert you know, not as a fully autonomous adult where I'd have more space to really just explore myself. So I look back and I'm not sure I have a lot of regret around that, but it definitely carried me forward for a few more years. And even then, though, I still maintained a large degree of interest in religion. I took a world religion class online. So there's something in me that was always drawn to the, the, the questions people ask about spirituality and just like the, our existence here, why we're here. But then I revisited a lot of these questions that I didn't really realize I'd buried. Um, when in college, I had also my sophomore year of college. Seems like my sophomore year is very pivotal in multiple seasons it of life. Like it. <laughs> I know. And so ultimately, I, I had an experience my sophomore year of college where my roommate um, was gay. And my worldview at the time didn't create a lot of space for that experience. I definitely remember struggling with what to think because, you know, my, the culture I was in and the way they interpreted parts of the Bible that condemned quote unquote homosexuality, it was, a, it seemed pretty stark and clear, but after a while, I think what I started noticing was just the level of self-acceptance that was lacking for my roommate and the fact that I was really, this, this troubled me was the idea that uh, sexual orientation, um, an expression of love, it's an expression of love. And to me, I was like, if God is love, then why is he punishing or lack of better words? Or like, well, why is this not okay? And my roommate was a, has a huge heart. He had a huge heart and he talked about wanting to be a dad. And I remember that upsetting me so much because I was like, God, your design is flawed. And I remember around that period of time, I felt like I had the most authentic connection to the divine because I could say things like that to God in prayer. Be like, this is ridiculous. Like he is one of those loving people I know. He wants to have kids. And because he's gay, he can't have that. And I really think I pushed back on some of the cultural assumptions that um, conservative evangelical Christianity was making at the college I was at. And I mean, it was a cascading effect from there on. I was asking questions from, well, you know, are we misinterpreting parts of the Bible? Which questions kind of a Christian theme of what they call inerrancy, the idea that all scriptures God breathed. Um, yeah, what is the, the word? I'm not sure I'm familiar with that. 
Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, there's a term called inerrancy. Um, inerrant, I think, is the base word. Oh, inerrant. Okay, got it. Yeah. Okay. So just, mm-hmm. yeah. The Bible is without error. And I think that's backed up by a verse typically that says something to the extent of all scriptures God breathed. So the idea is then that like God has blessed the scripture and we're to follow it. And I think what I started noticing though, is we say that and we disregard a lot of it, like looking at the old Testament, man, we do not like practice that stuff as if it were literal. We dismiss a lot. And so I started realizing that while we say these things to back up cultural assumptions, we simultaneously dismiss others that are inconvenient. And I think that's when a lot of the belief system started falling apart. And I think a question that got me to ultimately kind of reach a point of being comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty was the question of, well, if I was born in Saudi Arabia, wouldn't I be Muslim? And I had no way of arguing against that because I'd grown up in the United States as a Christian. And I think that empathetic like point of view that I allowed myself to take allowed me to sit with uncertainty in a way that was um, allowed me to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I think there's a certain level of acceptance around that. So to me, um, there wasn't, there's an acceptance of the fact that this life experience doesn't necessarily make sense and that's okay. And I think there's a lot of beauty in that because to me, I also struggle with the idea that God was this vast being, but then simultaneously we really understand how he works and the things he wants us to do and the things he doesn't want us to do. I struggled with the lack of curiosity and imploring diverse thought and this idea that God was almost like a ruler to be followed and not a lover to be discovered. Um, So I'm at a place now where I would say I'm pretty ambiguous religiously, but I definitely can appreciate the way that religion allows um, individuals to feel empowered. I think I reached a point where my faith wasn't empowering to me anymore, though. Mm -hmm. What is your relationship with your family and and maybe old friends and people that are very much uh, in line with that that path still? Mm. Oh, oh, that's a great question. Uh, Because that is, that has been a point of personal growth. I would hope for all parties. I'd be curious to hear what individuals who felt discomfort around my deconversion would have to say. So I'd love to see if my interpretation of how they're experiencing me and how they actually experiencing actually experienced me lines up. But with my, my immediate family, I'm not sure it gets brought up a ton. I think one thing I really appreciate about my mom, especially, is we have really good conversations. And maybe something in me years ago, like pushed back a little more. And I could tell that at times I might have been a little abrasive. So I've really, in recent years, I think, tried to focus on commonality. And I think what I've found is that we've really helped each other grow in perspectives. It's taken some time, but I do think there's mutual growth. Um, And I can speak to multiple friendships where, especially in the initial process of deconversion, it was hard on a lot of my friends, especially because I was at a conservative Christian university. Um, So what was really cool about it too, though, is that I got to really see who could hold space for my experience and who couldn't. And it really helped me get closer to the individuals who could accept me for who I was and really allowed me to distance myself from those who kind of felt the need to proselytize. And what I found is that even those who were pretty 
kind of, uh, maybe for lack of better words, argumentative initially. I've seen a lot of people come around. One of my mentors from my childhood, actually, I met him in high school and we've stayed close for over a decade now and we met through church. So our the mentorship uh, relationship very much was based in like our shared Christian faith. So when I started deconverting, it, it took some time and I was worried about losing that friendship, but it, that friendship has really come around. And every time I'm home, I try to reach out and see him because he's such a dear friend. So to me, I look at look at the experience and I'm grateful for the personal growth I acquired. And my hope is that those around me have grown in their own way too. Hmm. So as someone who's traveled so extensively um, and you've, you know, you've gone through a lot of uh, personal growth and change, I'm just curious about what are uh, your guiding principles today? You know, and if, is there anything that anything that you've seen in the world or any, or any just personal epiphany or awareness that, that stands out to you that you'd want to share? Whew, wow. No pressure here. Wow. Two, yeah, there were a couple big, those were two questions. I just put it into one, but great. see what you got. <laughs> wow. Whew, that's really incredible. And it's, I appreciate you embracing such a philosophical question. Um, I think it's a good question to revisit just kind of why, why, why are we doing what we're doing? Um, for me, I think some guiding principles and I'm not sure if these are, I'm also a verbal processor. So I have a feeling that even though I'm being recorded with you right now, I'm trying to form my thoughts and they'll form as I'm like thought vomiting. But <laughs> for me, a huge principle that allows me, I think, to have patience and curiosity with the life experience of others. I think I internalized a lot in Singapore around curiosity. Uh, this idea that, again, people are living vastly different lives. Um, that keeps me curious about people's life experience. I actually think that's been helpful for me to override um, things like cognitive dissonance more. And it's not that I don't experience that. It's just that when that comes up, I want to be aware that my body is having that experience and that I want to be able to actually connect with the person who's saying something that might be either triggering to me or I might disagree with. Um, and part of it too is just certain readings I've done. So a big way to deactivate cognitive dissonance in oneself and in another person is just to ask questions and be curious. Um, so even if someone's saying something I disagree with, just ask questions that implore curiosity. And that also just fits into getting to know people for who they are and what they care about. And so to me, I think human connection seems to be the driving force behind the way I want to live my life, largely because, yeah, and this is a guiding principle. It's like when I'm on my deathbed someday, like what am I going to look back on and uh, think about the life I've created for myself. So I think a lot of that, a lot of the choices I make, I, I try to think about my future self. So little things like setting an alarm that, oh, I'm doing this podcast interview with Robin. So in case I got caught up in something, my phone's going to let me know like, hey, man, you've got this happening soon. Um, and that's just my past self taking care of my future self. And I think in a lot of ways, too, it, it's loving myself the way um, I want to show up and love others too. 
I think that's another aspect too, again, with like human connection being such an, such an important thing. People on their deathbeds, I think typically think back to the times they spent with loved ones. It's typically not, I wish I worked more. I wish I made so much more money. And I'm sure those things happen. But I think oftentimes it's just about um, our connections to the people we love in our lives. And I think at the end of the day too, um, I think often what inhibits or prohibits people from being able to connect on a deeper level is just a lot of the pain that we hold. Trauma we've experienced, beliefs about ourselves that are either more negative or question whether or not we're safe and kind of create a barrier between us and uh, authentic connection to others. So to me, uh, having a lens of, um, I think, having a lens that people are walking around with pain, everyone is to some degree, and kind of being patient, being patient in the ways that may manifest. It may manifest in um, beliefs that are uncomfortable to hear about or anger or sadness. And I think in a lot of ways, if we can step back and remember that we're all holding on to something that's really hard or experiencing something that's really hard. I think it gives us a certain level of compassion and connection that I think we're all probably wanting. So that to me is, are some of the things that guide the way I live. And I think that's largely why I want to go into psychology too, is if we're all carrying around this pain, how do we heal it? That is a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much, Sean Lehman. Mm, and good luck on your your master's program. I'm really excited to uh, hear more from you in the future. So thank you for joining us. I really appreciate being here. Thank you for having me, Robin. You got questions? We got answers. (laughs) This time we have a question from Brian Lobig. And Brian says, what 80s rock song would your favorite cartoon character like and why? Oh, boy. <laughs> I, I, I love Brian and I love this question. <laughs> it's it, it's making me laugh. <laughs> oh, I had to think about this one because it's like, oh, who, coming up with your favorite cartoon character is hard in the first place because there's so many. I watch so many cartoons. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. So um, many cartoons. So many cartoons <laughs> with so many characters. And I'm I'm taking low-hanging fruit and I'm saying that I'm I'm adding myself. This is this is an, yeah, this is the low-hanging fruit answer. My favorite <laughs> cartoon character is Philip J. Fry from Futurama. And right. his 80s rock song that he he likes is Walking on Sunshine. And I know this because he sings it at least three times in the series. <laughs> nice. And his dog sings it too. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah, funny. Yeah, Seymour. That's a good one. I like it. Oh, man. So my answer, I was going to go for the low-hanging fruit actually too. Because <laughs> my, my original, my first beloved cartoon character with speed racer okay so i thought well he's gonna like cars by gary newman and i looked it up and i was like damn it that's that song is 1979 so i can't really say it's close but no cigar then i thought well he could like drive by the cars okay but that's pretty that's kind of a 
mellow song. I, I think Speed is he's. A what lot about more. Life Is a Highway? That's a is good that one. too late? Is that an '80s song? I don't even know. I think that's '80s. Yeah, that's a good choice. But eh, I said, well, he might like he might like Drive by the Car. So that's one answer. But I think I uh, my better one. I was thinking, you know, I love the Powerpuff Girls, and it's hard to choose between them. You know, <laughs> choose between them. But I think Buttercup is pretty cool. I, I really like Buttercup, and I she's think... the one in the green dress with the black hair. Yes, that's yes. my favorite one too out of them. Yeah, and I think she would be jamming out to "Bad Reputation" by Joan Jett. <laughs> I totally I, see that. I think that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So thank you, Brian, for that hilarious question. <laughs> In our next show, we have a mystery guest. <laughs> yes. I think I'm going to secure the interview. I'm 98% sure I will have by that time. But just in case we don't, I will we'll leave it as a question mark for you. And also, we, were going to, we are going to have a Geekscape segment. And we haven't totally decided what we're going to talk about. Awesome. <laughs> we were going to have a... Magical show of mystery next oh, time. Yeah. Ooh, for, for Halloween. Ooh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for listening. I'm Robin Renee, and you can find me on Facebook at Robin Renee Fan, on Instagram at Robin Renee Music, and on Twitter at Spirit Rock Sexy. And if you're on Discord or if you travel in the subgenius circles, you will find me as Androgenus. <laughs> I did not know that. Yes. I'm Wendy Sheridan, and you can find me on Facebook and, into, uh, the, and Instagram at Wendy Cards, on Twitter at Wendy Designs, and on Etsy at Wendy Cards with a Z. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, you can always reach out to us on social media at Leftscape. We love to hear from you. Send us your questions, and we might answer it on an upcoming show. So until next time. Peace out. <laughs> That's not our slogan. We'll get one eventually. <laughs>